Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Solomon is still showing us that everything in the world, everything without God and everything without the fear of God is just so much vanity. It's just grasping at the wind. You know, if you take away God, you take away the fear of God, there's really nothing valuable in this world. Amen. There's nothing for which a man would think it's worthwhile to stay here, okay? Uh, this world and I don't get along. I don't know if you've, I've told you that before, but I feel like I'm a square peg trying to fit into a round hole in this world, folks. And the farther we go in time, the more it gets that way and should get that way for the child of God. Now, what Solomon is going to show in these verses that power which is the thing for which men would desire, and even life itself, the thing of which so many are jealous today, are absolutely nothing without the fear of God. Again, we're talking about life under the sun. That's the title of this series. You know, people try to make sense out of things that happen today, and they try to make sense and form opinions about God today based on what they can see with the human eye. And they seen things happening, and they may have some attitude or some opinion toward God. In 1981, a man named Rabbi Harold Kirshner wrote a book. And that book was titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote that book after the death of his three-year-old son. Now, here's what he did. He formed his ideas about God based on what he saw in the world. And so he put together this book. He concluded that God never wills bad things to happen to good people. And I would have to agree with him there. Then at the last part of his statement I don't agree with. He said God never wills bad things to happen to good people. But he just doesn't have the power to keep bad things from happening to good people. That's what Rabbi Kushner said. So ultimately, bad things happen to good people, he concluded, because God's will just can't be carried out. Now, folks, what did we learn last week in the message? God's in control. God's will will be accomplished, and God's will can be carried out. But what Rabbi Kushner did, he said bad things happen because certain things are just outside of the control of God. No, God is in control. Now, Solomon records observations he's going to make under the sun. Again, he's looking at life just as a man not considering God, not considering faith in God. With that in mind, think about this. We all want things to be fair, don't we? Don't you like things to happen to you to be? Remember as children, 
Somebody, we're playing a game and somebody was cheating, what would we say? That's not fair. When ours were growing up, many times parents would make decisions, you know, and they'd say, that's not fair. And you know what my response to that was? Life's not fair, learn to live with it, okay? If you go through life expecting life to be fair, you're going to be sorely disappointed because life is not fair. And also, we have a strange relationship with justice, don't we? I mean, we want justice when somebody wrongs us. Many times we may say, well, there's just no justice in the world. I don't want justice. I want mercy, really. But when somebody wrongs us, we want justice. But what do we want when we're wrong? We want mercy. I don't want justice. I want to be forgiven. I want mercy when I'm wrong. We see lawbreakers punished. You know, somebody speeds by us or they run a stop sign in front of us. What do we want? I don't know about you, but I'd love to see a little car with red and blue lights on top of it right parked right behind them on the side of the road right after they do that. But now, if I'm going a little bit fast or fail to stop at that stop sign, I want mercy, right? Let me off this time and I won't do it. Anyway, Jesus said something like that in the seventh chapter of Matthew. You know what he said there? He said, judge not, lest you be judged. He said, because with what judgment that you judge, that's a judgment that you're going to be judged with. And then he gave us the illustration of the beam and the moat. And here's his illustration. You're familiar with it. Here's my brother that has a speck of sawdust in his eye. That's the moat. And I'm going to try to get the speck of sawdust out of his eye when I've got a log in mine. See, a lot of times we want to judge other people and judge things in a way that benefits us or when we're guilty of doing the very same things. But we want justice. Now, Solomon's searching for the purpose and the meaning of life, as we call it, under the sun. He's experienced work. He's experienced myth. He's experienced wisdom. And he didn't find an answer. He didn't find a purpose and meaning for life in all of these things. And now, all of a sudden, as we read in verse 16, this issue of injustice, of not being fair appears before Solomon, and he's going to talk about dealing with it. So the first thing he does is he looks at the problem of injustice. There are two places in this world that you would expect things to be just and fair and pure, aren't there? One's the courthouse, and the other's the church house, right? Things just ought to be done right there. You go to court, you expect things to come out the way they're supposed to. You go to church, you expect everybody to be kind and pure and fair. We're probably all familiar with Lady Justice, the statue of Lady Justice. There she stands with a blindfold, a set of balanced scales in her right hand, and a sword in her left hand. Now, the blindfold represents impartiality. When we go into the courthouse, we want impartiality. We want a fair and impartial judge. The scales represent fairness. We want things to be done fairly, and the sword represents swift and sure judgment. And that's the picture and the image that we have of our justice system. Well, what did Solomon say he saw? He said, I saw in the place of judgment iniquity or wickedness. Now, the idea of his seeing it here is that he saw it with a certain amount of disdain. He purposely viewed it, but what he saw didn't make him happy. And the place of judgment literally is the place where verdicts were handed down. So Solomon is looking into the courthouse. 
He's looking into the system of justice which ought to be fair and he sees this wickedness, its impiety, its ungodliness. Now, maybe what he had seen in former times, maybe what was, I read some discussion that, you know, he's the king, he could have just taken care of any kind of injustice that was going on in the courthouse, and maybe he could have, but maybe he looked at times past, maybe he looked at other nations, maybe he looked at what was going on in his own country, and he saw injustice. People fled to the courts, and they do that even today, fled to the courts expecting to see justice, and what happened there, and many times I saw the greatest wrongs. And Solomon said, this is life under the sun. Again, life's not fair. And sometimes we have to learn to live with life that's not fair. Matthew Henry said this, it would have been better for the judges to have had no power than to have had power and used it in the wrong way. And that's true. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe that in America today, we have the finest criminal justice system in the world. I'm just sort of bleeding red, white, and blue today, okay? We have laws. We have systems of courts. We have appeals, we have judges for the wrongdoer, for the criminal, we have the prisons. But you know our criminal justice system has a weakness. And you know what the weakness of that system is? It's only as good as the people that participate in it. That's why I'm gonna just offer an opinion here. That's why a child of God and they get a jury summons ought not to try to get out of it. You know, we're gonna hopefully we're the ones who'd be fair. And so we get to do that, or we're asked to go to court and serve as a juror. We ought to be willing to fulfill our purpose because, again, when the system fails, it only fails because it's being administered by imperfect people. Sinful men are not capable of bringing about perfect justice. We're always going to have favorites or sometimes form of opinions. And some folks are even motivated by their own evil desires. So Solomon looked into the courthouse and he saw injustice. We're well aware that many times innocent people are convicted of crimes they didn't commit. And then sometimes a person gets to walk free after they've committed murder. We know that sort of thing happens. I think many years ago, for those who remember it, there were people that rejoiced. And I'm not going to offer an opinion. I don't know that I have an opinion, but there are many people that rejoiced when O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder. And there's some that said he got away with murder. You know what I've started doing? I've started praying this way. Lord, if they're guilty, let the jury find them guilty. And Lord, if they're not guilty, let the jury acquit them. That's my prayer for a case like that because I don't know hearts and I don't know circumstances. But it ought to make us cringe when we hear that a judge has taken a bribe. It ought to make us as Americans cringe when we read that an attorney has misrepresented the facts or that a witness has lied under oath or that a murderer has gone free. It ought to make us cringe. It ought to make us cringe when we learn that those who have financial means have gotten their version of justice when those who don't have financial means did not get true justice. Solomon saw iniquity in the courts, but he saw iniquity somewhere else too. Not just in the courthouse, he saw it in the church house. And that's where it ought not to be. This word iniquity is the same word as wickedness earlier on. And the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. It will rock people's foundations. It has and it does many times when they hear that a pastor and sometimes a prominent pastor has been found guilty or has fallen into some kind of immorality. We've seen cases around here where church workers 
youth workers have been arrested and charged with abusing, sometimes sexually abusing, the very young people that they're asked to work with. You know, there's a reason that we as a church take the cautions that we take. That if you want to work with young people or you work, want to work in some capacity in this church, we're going to do a background check on you. You're going to have to be here for a little while and let us get to know you. We're not going to just take you and put you right into an office. And there's a reason that this pastor, and I hope it's never offensive to anybody, but this pastor is going to be very careful about being put into compromising situations or situations where somebody could say, well, you know, I saw the pastor up there with sister so-and-so or whatever. We will to be careful about that, folks, because we don't want people to say, well, there's iniquity in the church house, all right? Well, we're going to talk about judgment. You say, what is all of this wickedness in the courthouse and iniquity in the church house? What does it have to do with judgment. Well, here's what Solomon says in verse 17. He says, to everything there's a season. He goes right back to what he said in the first verse. And then he says, this I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There may be iniquity in the courthouse. There may be wickedness in the church house. People may seem to get away with it, but what Solomon is saying, look, there's coming a time. It may be in this life and it may be in the next life, but there is coming a time that judgment is going to take place. Look, our confidence does not lie in an earthly justice system. It ought to lie with the chief justice of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's promised a day when judgment's going to come. You look at Acts chapter 17. Verses 30 and 31, and we're just going to read a part of that. But he said, He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. God said, there's coming a day. Judgment is going to take place. Many years ago, and I just went blank on the preacher's name, and some of you may remember it, but he, Brother R.G. Lee, Robert G. Lee, he preached a sermon called Payday Someday. And that sermon was about uh, Ahab and Jezebel and all of the evil things that they did and how they died. And he said, there's going to be a payday someday, folks. And listen, we may think people are getting away with evil. We may think we're getting away with sin, but there is coming a payday someday. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or, de good or bad. Do you realize that you and I are going as saved people? We like to talk about lost people getting judgment, but listen, one of these days we're going to be judged. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our lives are going to be presented. I don't know how it's all going to work. I hope it's a private judgment and I hope you're not there when mine's judged, Okay. But we're going to be judged, and we're going to stand before the Lord. Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to read portions of verses 11 through 15, but listen to this. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And they were judged every man according to their works, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the final judgment. All of those who rejected Jesus Christ 
Their names are not written in the book of life. And when that book is open, and the books, talking about the 66 books of the Bible are open, and their name is not in the book of life, and they've done evil works, and even things to oppose the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and oppose God's people, they're going to be judged by those things. That's a final judgment. But I think there's a judgment of sorts that takes place at death. You may not want to call it that, but it's a judgment of sorts. If one has not accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior when they die, they're going to go to a place of torment. Well, what is that place of torment? It's the Old Testament word, Sheol, the place asked about, the place of departed spirits. And as I understand it, it had a torment side and it had a side that Luke calls Abraham's bosom. And all of those who died without Christ go to that torment. The rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, the moment he died, he opened his eyes and he said, I'm in torment. In fact, remember what he did? He asked if Lazarus could just dip his tip of his finger in water and touch it to his tongue. He was so tormented. Remember what he was told, that there's a great gulf fixed between those two places and they can't go from one side to the other. And so the rich man became very evangelistic minded at that point. He said, I got five brothers that are lost. They need to be saved. Would you send Lazarus? Remember what he was told? They won't believe the word of God. They wouldn't believe if somebody went to them from the dead and witnessed to them. And the power of the word of God is presented right there in that book of Luke. But then after the sacrifice of Jesus... That place called Abraham's bosom was removed to a place called paradise. Remember what Jesus said to one of those thieves on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me, where? In paradise. And it was removed to paradise. And then Isaiah chapter 5 says, hell hath enlarged herself. And I believe when Jesus removed Abraham's bosom, that place of torment just got bigger. And one of these days it's going to be cast, uh, death and hell are going to be cast into the lake of fire, the scripture says. The unsaved individual does not have to wait until he dies to be condemned. John 3.18 says he's condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But if a person has accepted Jesus, what's going to happen when they die? You know that I believe demons escorted the rich men into torments because the angels escorted Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. And you know, there's opposites in the Bible, and for everything good, there's something bad. And so if angels escorted uh, Lazarus into Abraham's bosom, I believe demons escorted the rich man into torments. But if a person's accepted Christ, he's going to go and be with the Lord. So verse 17 shows us Solomon's faith in God. Yes, he's looking for meaning for life under the sun, for life apart from God, for the meaning of life apart from God, and he doesn't find it, and so he comes right back to his faith in God, and he said, God's going to judge one of these days. God's going to take care of things, and I shouldn't worry about it. Well, then he talks about God manifesting men that they see themselves as beasts. We've talked about God's final judgment, and judgment under the sun may last on this earth, may last, but again, there's coming that final judgment, but verse 18 has the thought of coming judgment with a twofold purpose. When he talks about God manifesting them, he's talking about God showing men for what they are, causing men to realize that they're sinners separated from him, and it has a twofold purpose. Number one, that God might be honored. That judgment that he's talking about here 
is going to show that the Word of God is quick and it's powerful and it's sharp. And the Word of God condemns and declares the condemnation of those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. He shows how open we lie to God's judgment on a daily basis. That God would manifest men for what they are. You remember what the psalmist said in the 139th Psalm? He said, there's nowhere, I'm paraphrasing it obviously, he said, there's nowhere I can go to flee from God. There's nowhere I can go to hide from God. He said, if I go into the grave, he's there. If I go into the depths of the sea, he's there. You can't escape God. This is a message our generation needs today. This present generation needs. You may be trying to hide from God, but you cannot escape God. And then the other purpose of it is that man would be humbled. Solomon knows that God's going to show mankind his true condition. He wants people to see for themselves that without God, that without faith in God, mankind is little more than a beast. And we're going to talk about some of the differences, but we're going to dwell on that for just a moment. You know, it's difficult to convince proud men that they are but men. It's hard to take somebody who's just filled with pride and filled with arrogance and convince them that, hey, you're just a man like I am. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school, about judging other people. Remember, Solomon's still talking about life under the sun, a life that's void of thoughts about God and the things of God. And in verses 19 and 20, he presents two similarities between man and beast under the sun. First of all, both have the same needs. He said they have one breath. Both man and animal need to breathe. You cut off the oxygen from either one and they're not going to live very long. So they have one breath, they need to breathe. But both man and animal need what? They need food, they need water, they need sustenance in order to be able to live. And then he says they're going to come to the same end. Both man and beast, he says, die. They're all going to come to that point where life departs them. This thing called death is coming to everybody. Again, Hebrews 9.27, we've referred to that verse a lot of times in this series of messages, but Hebrews 9.27, and as it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. It's coming to all of us. You know, I've told you about my habit. I've developed it as I've gotten older. I didn't used to do this when I was young, but I get up in the mornings and I pull up the newspaper online and the first place I go, in fact, the only place I go really is to the obituaries. Who's died? And now I've started looking at how old were they you know, when they passed away. But you know what I found? People in their 90s die, people in their 80s die, but people in their teens die and their 20s and their 30s. Death's coming to everybody, and we can't escape that, and that's one thing that man and animal, man and beast, have in common. What did he say in verse 2? There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. So Solomon, again, from the viewpoint of life under the sun, of life without God, without thoughts of God, has no preeminence over the beast. Man without God has no preeminence. What is preeminence? It's superiority. The root word for that means to be over. It means to excel. So a person without Christ, without God in their lives, has no preeminence over the animals. Matthew Henry said it this way, let a man be buried with the burial of a donkey. And he's referring to a verse in Jeremiah, the 22nd chapter, in which one of the kings, God told him, bury him 
bury him with the burial of a donkey. And so he says, let him be buried with the burial of a donkey. And what preeminence then does he have over a beast? We have a funeral service today. We want to dress things up. We want it to look pretty. We want it to be nice. We want to hide as much as we can this thing of death. We go to the cemeteries and many times they're beautiful to hide that this is a place of death. But you let a person be buried just the way you'd bury a dead animal. And what preeminence is there over the animal? You say, preacher, what does this have to do with judgment? I don't understand it. What does it have to do with judgment? There's going to be a righteous judgment, folks. But those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior, those who deny God and reject God, will have little more to look forward to than an animal, than a beast. What does an animal do? Just any animal. Well, they're born, right? And after they're born, they grow. They have food. They have drink. They age, and ultimately, they die. And what has that animal accomplished in life? What has been its purpose and the meaning to its life? Well, what does a person do? I'm talking about a person without God. Oh, they're, they're born and they live, and they may accomplish some things, and they may accomplish some great things. They may find a cure from some disease or something like that. But what has Solomon shown in the chapters we've already looked at? They're going to be forgotten one of these days. Just because they have this ability to discover great things or whatever, do great things, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be remembered forever. And here in verse 19, he says, here's all that a person living life under the sun can expect. Look at it. He says, so that a man hath no preeminence over a beast for all his vanity... And he says, the best thing you can do is just expect happiness under the sun. What happens under the sun when death comes? Look what he says. All go into one place. You say, well, what's that place? Isn't it amazing how the scripture answers its own questions? I thought I'd get an amen with that. Isn't it amazing how the scripture answers its own questions? Thank you. Where's that one place? Look at what he says. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. What's going to happen to this body when we die? And they take it and they, you know, we have a beautiful funeral service. You say, preacher, I don't want to talk about these things. Well, Solomon's talking about them. We have a beautiful funeral service and they, you know, they bury the casket. And so what's going to happen to this flesh? Well, listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And he had said previously, till thou return to the ground. We're going to go back to where we came from as far as the flesh is concerned. Now, the reason I point that out is some people look at that verse right there, and they say, you know, they just return to the dust. And especially the atheist will say, well, see, that just proves that there's no life after death. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the flesh. He's talking about life under the sun. He's talking about life without God. What's going to happen to the fleshly body, to the physical body? Matthew Henry puts it this way, as to their bodies, talking about the flesh, the change is altogether the same except the different respects paid to them. The dead bodies of men and beasts putrefy alike. Solomon's saying every man that minds his body only and not his soul makes himself no better than an animal. Because he's leaving God out of his life. 
But verse 21 presents the difference. There's a difference between what happens to a human being and the spirit of man at his death and the spirit of the animal at his death. And the difference is vast, but it's not visible. Look at what he says. He says, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward? The spirit of the animal is said just to go into the ground. We know that animals do not have eternal, everlasting life like men do. That's sad, to, you know, and I hate to say that. We have many animal lovers in our congregation, but that animal just does not have eternal life, everlasting life. Now, only of man is it said, and this again is in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and look at this, and man became a living soul. It doesn't say God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of the animals. God created the animals. But when God created man, he gave him that spirit, that soul that drives us, that activates us. It's what we are. Yes, what you see before you is just a fleshly body. But it's not me. What is me is what's on the inside. And so he says that the animal dies and that's just it. But men, something happens to their spirits. Matthew Henry again, the soul of a beast is at death like a candle blown out. There's an end of it. Whereas the soul of a man is then like a candle taken out of a dark lantern, which leaves the lantern useless indeed, but does itself shine brighter. That's what happens at death for a human being, especially for a child of God. Job 34, 15 tells us all flesh shall perish together and man shall turn again to dust. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, describing old age and death, Solomon says of mankind, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. And so there's a difference, a great difference between the spirits of men and the spirits of animals, and that's why any who are saved ought to follow the instructions of Colossians chapter 3, the first three verses, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Set your affection on those things that are above and not on things of the earth. There's coming a judgment, and it's going to be a righteous judgment. And then verse 22 Solomon closes out these thoughts with the same conclusion. Isn't it amazing? He comes back to the same conclusion each time. The same conclusion he held previously. There is nothing better than that a man should rejoice. Now we're talking about a man who's living under the sun. That a man should rejoice in his own works. The best that can be expected by a person who denies God. By a person who denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Who lived totally for the flesh is just to be satisfied with this life. That's their allotment. That's their portion, the Word of God says. You know what we might call it? And I think it's called today, living for today. That's the best that one who denies God and denies Christ can hope for, just live for today. Get what I can out of this life. And why have I said so many times from this pulpit and in teaching, don't criticize a lost man for getting what he can out of this life. Because for him, it doesn't get any better than this life. And we know that this life is not fair. Jesus told about a man like that in the book of Luke, the 12th chapter. I preached a sermon from those verses one time, and I entitled it, The Rich Fool with the Two, T-O-O, -O, Two Small Barns. You remember the account that the man had a great 
harvest for his crops. And he said, man, I've got so much, I, it fills my barns and I still have more and I'm going to have to tear down my barns and I'm going to have to build bigger barns. It's just been so good. This is a lost man talking. And he said this, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And folks, that's the attitude of society today. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Just have a good old good time. But God said, and this is verse 20, thou fool. He called the man a fool. This is a man who denied God. This is a man who lived under the sun. God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? We may amass great fortunes in this life, but guess what? You can't take it with you. Amen. We're going to leave it behind. We're going to leave it for someone else. And so God said that to him. And here's what Jesus said in verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. People today seem to live for right now. They live for the present. They live for what they can get. Even some of God's people live that way. And they're not thinking about being rich toward God. Remember, Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. One more quote from Matthew Henry. When we're gone, it is likely we shall not see what is after us. Amen. <laughs> and here's why. There is no correspondence that we know of between the other world and this. What are my loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord doing right now? I don't think they're watching this service. I don't think they're watching what's going on on earth. I'll tell you what I think they're watching. They're watching the Lord. They're praising Him. They're living in His presence. And he concluded, and while we are here, we cannot foresee what shall be after us. Any knowledge of what shall be after us comes from one place. And you know where that is? That's the Word of God. Amen. These verses deal with death and they deal with judgment. That's what these verses are dealing with. In fact, the title of this message is Living and Dying Like Animals. And that's what Solomon is talking about. But it deals with death and judgment. The scripture says in Romans 5.12, For death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It's appointed in Hebrews chapter 9. We quoted that earlier. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And I will guarantee you it will be a right judgment where true justice will prevail. Amen. God's not going to play favorites because the scripture says he's not a respecter of persons. I wanted to add this in closing this message. You're familiar with Barna Research and uh, all of the polls and they take and the questions they ask. Here's some statistics from Barna Research. In America, 8 out of 10 people, that's 80%, believe in life after death. I'm going to just editorialize here for a moment. Based on the way people live today, you wouldn't think it'd be that high, would you? 8 out of 10 believe in life after death. 9% say they believe that there might be some kind of life after death, but they're not certain. 79% believe that every person has a soul that will live forever somewhere. But now listen to this. Only 71% believe that hell exists. We don't want to believe in bad things. We don't want to believe in hell or something like that. But now it gets even better only one half of 1% of the people surveyed believe they're going to hell. And 64% believe that they're going to heaven. 
I don't know how you compensate for the difference between 80% believing in life after death and only 64% believe they're going to heaven. That means there's a mission field out there somewhere, doesn't it? We need to find those folks. And here's the sad one. One in five believe in reincarnation. That you can come back as a bug or an animal or maybe a person or whatever. You know, I've lived this life before. Why would you want to do that, by the way? I mean, knowing what life is like, why would you want to go through it again on this earth? Amen. <laughs> you know? But one in five believe in reincarnation. Solomon has taught us, and I'm repeating this, I know, but taught us repeatedly, repeatedly, that life under the sun is just so much trying to grab the wind and hold on to the wind. But life above the sun, Life in trusting God and believing in God brings us in eternity in heaven as we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And then in this life plus life in heaven, we have blessings and we have rewards and we have joy now and we will have joy then. Righteous judgment, I'll say again, is coming. The question is, and I believe I'm talking to saved people this morning, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Righteous judgment is coming, but the question is, at which judgment will you stand? Only the lost are going to stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And they're going to hear those final words, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. And only the saved are going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I pray that we'll hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. We live in a world where I believe justice many times is for sale. If you know the right people, if you have enough money, if you can afford the best attorney, you can get your brand of justice. But folks, that's not always true justice. But we look forward to that day. I said, I hope the judgment seat of Christ is a private event. I don't want you there listening to what the Lord says to me, and I don't want to hear what he says to you either. But we look forward to that day when justice is rendered in a pure and fair manner, and that will be rendered by God.